Hello. Hi, Chris. How are you? Hi, Bill. Uh, I'm very well. How Good. are you? Good. We are uh, doing something different today, eh? Very different. Yeah. Uh, we I'm are... actually quite nervous. Are I'm, you? Yeah, a wee bit. Yeah. <laughs> right, okay. So, <laughs> um, we are in. Uh, we're we're away from the shop today. We're on a field trip to the renowned uh, Scottish studio Chem Nineteen with the wonderful Paul Savage. Hello, Paul. Hi, Hello. Yeah. How, How are you? Doing? Yeah, all good. Good, all good. good. Um, I don't know that the the majority of our guys will know who you are. So, do you want to say a little bit about yourself and and yeah, and sure. Uh, so. It's quite a long history. I'll try and keep it short. Um, I started playing in bands at school and uh, started as a guitarist. And um, I was in this band that had about 10 guitarists at one point. And <laughs> we, got, we, we split up. Basically, there was too many guitarists. And, and uh, the three of us that were chucked out of that band decided that we would form our other, another band uh, with... Um, with Emma, who's now my wife, Emma Pollock. And uh, so the four of us decided that we would do this and we ended up with four guitarists. So we had to make a decision on who was going to play drums and bass. So I can't sing to save myself. So I was like, right, okay, I'll, I'll, I've always fancied playing drums. So I'll, I'll, I'll play drums. Stuart decided he was going to try bass. Um, so we formed uh, a band called the Delgados in 1994. Uh, started a label called Chemical Underground to release the first record by the Delgados in 1995 and went on to release bands on the label like Mogwai, Arab Strap, um, Phantom Band, Sluts of Trust, um, lots of different, mm -hmm. lots of different things. So we're still going today. Uh, the band split up about 10 years after we started. 2005 okay um i had always been an engineer as well as a drummer so right. in the band as well as touring doing you know we did five albums in that time we got to, i got to work in lots of recording studios with some fantastic people i uh, got to tour the world um you know basically did things i never expected that were going to happen and uh it was a great 10 years in the band um I was also at the time, I'd, I'd, before the band, around about the same time the band started, I was studying to be a sound engineer. So as well as a drummer, I was a, I was a, a recording engineer. So a lot of the early stuff, like the first album, for instance, was done by me. Right. Um, that was really tough, that first album, because first of all, I was new to it. And mm -hmm. uh, plus being in a band and engineering your own band is very, very tough politically. <laughs> so <laughs> we we had a nightmare of a time and the drums record. sounded amazing though. <laughs> I don't know about that. I just made sure they were loud, so so that was all good. Um, so we decided to move on to to different different studios and different personnel, and I didn't have to be the one who's recording <laughs> things. So yeah, so since the band split up, I've been working and uh, uh, developing the studio that we started in 1997, a few years after the band. And the label started. It was the one I was, I was working in at the time, and my old boss decided he didn't want to be a, a studio owner anymore, and we took over uh, this industrial unit about a mile from where we are just now. Oh, cool! And um, we had that for a while. It had two rehearsal rooms, so we went that we did that whole thing with rehearsal rooms, 
two metal bands next door to uh, <laughs> somebody who's recording a spoken word thing and soundproof and nightmare it was a great studio for for lots of reasons but it was a terrible studio for lots of other reasons uh-huh. um so in 2005 when the band split up i decided i would concentrate on the recording side of it and production and started getting into I mean, I was always recording other people anyway. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. we had a commercial venture in the, in the, the label, in the studio. Uh, the studio is named Chem19 because Chemical Underground is the name of the label that we run. Um, each label release has a catalogue number. So started at Chem1 oh, okay. was the first Delgado's release. Oh, yeah. Chem19 was the next one on the list when we bought Chem when we bought the studio. So we thought, what are we going to call it? We'll call it Chem19. Okay. So that's why if you look at Chemical Underground's catalogue, there is no 19. So this is Chem 19. Oh, there you go. So Crafty. that's why. I like that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And basically since then, I've been playing on records in the studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much live stuff. Emma still plays solo. Uh, I was her drummer, main drummer for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, until... Um, it got too difficult with childcare and things like that to, <laughs> to have both parents away from from a small boy. Yeah. Um and also got younger, more impressive models like Johnny Scott and Martin <laughs> Johnson and <laughs> they're both incredible drummers. Yeah, they're both very, yeah. very good though. So yeah, so Emma's got, you know, got them to, to help if they if she ever needs needs like drums in a set. Oh cool. So yeah, and now we're we're at a point where I'm I'm still playing live, like I said, still playing live in the studio, but mainly just concentrating on production mm-hmm. and engineering in the studio. And there's like a million things to unpack. Oh man. Just from that. So is it true that drummers make the best engineers? Just given that the, the old adage that you've got the best seat in the house, you kind of hear a stereo mix of the band, if you like, when you're playing live. Well, that's an interesting... Yeah, I heard, it for, I heard the same thing, but maybe from a different point of view. Right. Which the, the the one that I heard, but I think that one's very valid because you do have an overview. I mean, I was always interested in production, mm-hmm. and I'm not really a drummer first and foremost. Yeah, uh, I never had any lessons as such. I never, I kind of really learned by by the momentum of the band in the first few years. I was never comfortable playing live. I was very very nervous playing live right. until maybe album number three, uh, and then it. Then we became, I think we be, we became a better band round about then, and it was, I think we all developed as mm-hmm. players. Right. Um, I never, I was never a flash player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I tried to use as much inventiveness as I could. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, from the point of view, I always was interested in production. So sitting at the back and watching everything that was going on, that was definitely what I did mainly just because I was always interested in mm. that. So I might have done it if I was still with a guitar player. Um, <laughs> I just would have been turning around, yeah, yeah. looking at the drummer. Going yeah. up. <laughs> but uh, the thing I heard was that it was, um, like I, there's a theory that I, I've heard that you can't get a good sounding record without good drums. Uh-huh. You don't. You would never get somebody saying that's the best sounding record in the world with shit drums. Right. Mm. I kind of think that's true. There maybe is one or two exceptions, but I think on a whole, it's a general rule. If you have a great sounding drum sound, 
it kind of translates to um, right through the recording. It mm-hmm. kind of you can get away with a really dodgy sounding vocal. I think you know vocals can be manipulated and sound tinny and thin and affected. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you don't have the full spectrum, if you have a kick drum that has no weight, or if you yeah. have a, if you have a really nasty sounding squawky snare drum, you know it's never gonna it's never gonna be an appealing listen. No, mm-hmm. no. You're right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So I think that that's what I've heard is, but yeah, maybe that is, maybe the combination of the the emphasis being on on good drum sounds plus the fact that a drummer does get to see everything from the back. There's no one behind. Yeah, the drummer. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you get to. I I certainly wanted everything in my mix. Life. So you would would you have like a stereo band mix, like almost like a front of house mix? I would always want a front of house right. mix. Yeah. Really, yeah. you know, I would want to hear everything. Right. Just yeah, because I guess that even if you look at it, I hate to use this word, but even if you look at it from like a product point of view, to make sure what's going out the front sounds yeah. great as an ensemble. Yeah. You know, rather than guys that just concentrate on, you know, oh, I just want the bass or I just want. No, I never, yeah. I never wanted that. It's, it's funny, there's like yeah. two camps of drummers, eh? I don't know yeah. if you've experienced this, or if even if you've experienced this, Paul, where there's, mm-hmm. there are the, the drummers that want just, you know, say, the, I've played theatre shows where it's been like, like take some of the vocals out, please, because either they're not strong enough, or there's o- almost overload, because there's too many voices, or... Yeah. And then there's the guys like yourself that want it all, because they want to hear how it all sounds as a picture. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, for me, we were never tight enough as a band to to play to clicks and backing tracks. Um, did it eventually in the studio when when Pro Tools became a little bit more. I mean, I, it's it's been an interesting recording experience from from when I started learning how to how to record and my first times recording drums in a studio. It was tape, right? But like very quickly like a year or two years later it was it was Pro Tools mm-hmm. or Pro Tools was coming in mm-hmm. and it was this kind of old school thing where I would try and get to the end of a take on tape <laughs> and it was a nerve wracking process yeah. because when you're on tape you're like if I screw this up we stop and we go back to the start and we do it all again yeah. mm-hmm. and it could be a brilliant take and everyone's playing really well and I mess up and that's it and there's no Let's take the best of that one and the yeah. best of that one and yeah. the best of that one. You've got, you know, we weren't doing it to a click, so it was more than likely going to be slightly different tempos each take. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the chance of splicing, and yeah. splicing on tape's a nightmare anyway. So yeah. mm-hmm. we just never did it. So it was a case of like <clears throat> waiting for me to get the right drum take. And that pressure was really, it was quite, I'd, I really felt it. And um, it wasn't until I think it was maybe the third album that, that Pro Tools was kind of, and where we recorded in Glasgow was a place called Savar. Oh yeah, and okay, um, yeah. so we we did a lot of it with Tony Dugan in there, uh-huh. and he was. You remember the the time when we got to the third album, and he was saying like, "You can, why don't we just if you can learn to do a click to play to a click, we can just do multiple takes, and we can take the best of it." Mm-hmm. So I quickly, kind of, I mean, I think any drummer of learning to play to a click. The first time is is odd. Yeah, it's a roast. It's, it really is. But then you you get used to it, and it was eventually I got there, and I think um, it was a kind of penny drop moment. Like 
not only can I just get a good cobble together a good take or mm. an acceptable take, I can be a lot more of a, a kind of a lot bolder as a drummer than I than I was before because mm. mm -hmm. I was Did a timid drummer. Yeah. yeah, I was quite not timid as in sound. I was always quite quite loud, but I was safe. I was safe. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Three quarters of the way through the song, three quarters of the way through the take, I'm thinking this is going really well. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> and and that's a nightmare to be yeah, yeah. to to be have these thoughts come in your head when you're trying to have a good feel and you just yeah. try to make like and you've yeah. got you know that you've got like this moment where you're gonna do a fill and you think, Do I go for that really tricky one or do I just keep it simple? Yeah. And I would always keep it simple. Yeah. Until until sort of digital recording came along and it was like, Okay, I can do I can try this. It doesn't matter, you know, I can go yeah, for it. And it was like, and, and nowadays it's common for everyone to just think, oh yeah, you just cobble it together and punch it beat detective yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. Which, you know, so did that, in that case, that make you more creative? Yeah. Right. It did. It was, cool. We went stupid with it. I yeah. mean, there was a couple of songs that I look back on now and I was like, Jesus, nobody would even think about doing that now yeah. because it's just ridiculous. Yeah. It was so cut up. It was almost like, yeah, really fake. But as a, as a, yeah, it was fun. I'd heard a story about Miles Davis's quintet in the 60s when Nefertiti, the album, came out and the title track on it is called Nefertiti. And it was like the band had recorded like the greatest thing they'd ever done together. Yeah. And the tape got destroyed by accident. Oh, Jesus. And they just were like, right, we're done. So the next, the take on the album's like, nobody can be arsed because they're right. just so, they're so destroyed because the, the thing they had recorded just. 10 minutes previously was apparently the greatest thing they'd ever done so mm. all that stuff you know you, you back back in that that time you just couldn't rescue anything really could you nowadays you just oh no you got undo and, yeah yeah and save it back up yeah yeah there's yeah. like a dropbox folder with every file like oh, the session and yeah, all that great. Like nowadays yeah um do you still record the tape now yeah 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 still still do it not uh, not every day not everyone can be arsed with it mm -hmm. or can afford it Mm. Um, yeah, it's a it's 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 a different discipline, and it's a, it's really fun. It's great for drums as far as the sounds concerned. It takes off a little little bit the transient mm -hmm. in a nice way. Um, I think it saturates some of the those transients as well. So you've always you've got a little bit of tape compression. It's maybe a little more apparent on on a drum kit than mm -hmm. it is on on other things. Mm. Um, yeah, so you know, I do, I do use it every now and again, and uh, I still, I still love it. It's, I haven't said that the the thing about the sound. A lot of people talk about the sound of tape and mm -hmm. uh, you know being magical. A lot of people go too far with that and think tape's going to be the 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 magic wand that you wave and over your record and is suddenly going to be amazing. Mm -hmm. It's it's not like yeah. that. It, I like it for, for a number of reasons, but it's not just the sound. It's mainly just the workflow. Right. It makes you do what that thing, well, that thing that I was scared of. Mm -hmm. I was scared because I was a new drummer. This is album number one for me, album number two. Yeah. Um, I was never taught how right, to play yeah. drums. So this was all me making it up. Mm -hmm. And as I got better, I would, I would, I would find, all right, okay, I'm getting, I can do that now. Mm -hmm. But there wasn't anybody there telling me, no, you're fine. You're okay. So I was kind of a breaking my own barriers all the time and mm -hmm. not having anybody there going, no, you know what? You're, you're, you've got that sorted. Mm -hmm. So 
where it really comes in at its own is, is, is a great drummer or a great band yeah. mm-hmm. who are confident that they can just do whatever it is they want to do. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't work, they can do another take and it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. You know, so a great band doing their thing and gelling together on tape is incredible because it just forces them to focus on the performance. Yeah, right. And especially if there's no click. Yeah. Click's a, a thing that, although it does enable you to do multiple takes, I'm go- actually going backwards towards the whole first two albums that I was so scared of now. Yeah. And actually wanting to push bands into that realm. Right. Rather than... Slightly more organic. Everything's clicked yeah. nowadays. Yeah. Everything is. Yeah. And, you know, the whole thing about a drummer who's playing to a click, who's not great. <laughs> have you, you must have heard about, you know, a lot of people talk about that push and pull that you get. Yeah, yeah. So, like, as, as you know, as a drummer, you you'll probably be faster than the click. Mm. You'll want to go faster. Mm. Everyone pushes a click. Mm. But what happens is when you push it too far is you go, oh, I'm too far ahead of that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to slow down again. There's nothing worse than that sound of a drummer slowing down yeah. mm-hmm. to try and catch a click. Yeah. It sounds terrible. Yeah. You know, so you don't get that when you when someone's just playing natural. If someone, If a band goes into a rehearsal room and plays, they're not sitting all the way clicks in their head no. you know don't put on a head put on headphones and listen to a click yeah I but why they need yeah. to come into a studio and and put on headphones and everyone plays to a grid i mean we we tried to do it the first time i ever played to a click we couldn't settle on a tempo right and this is the way that we were as a band so we were like okay the verse ones at say verse ones at 118 but chorus ones 122 yeah and then verse two is 120. Yeah. And chorus two is 124. Yeah. So it would be like up, back, but not quite back to where it was, yeah. and then up again. So it was that classic thing. I mean, partly because I wasn't a metronomic drummer, but partly because that's actually what the song needed. Yeah, I get and that. And it dynamically mm-hmm. needed that kind of slight raise and slight relax, and then the same again, but, you know, because we didn't want to go right back down to, yeah. it's really hard to go right back down to that verse tempo if you if you speed up in the chorus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I found that we we actually did the first ever click that I played in the studio it was like that. It was a tempo map. Yeah. It was a two bar count, and then it was one eighteen for sixteen bars, and then it was up to chorus one speed at you know whatever one twenty. It was also the nineties, eh? Yeah. So like I mean that was the height of grunge, and although I can't imagine. Nirvana going in and knocking no. out in bloom. Like yeah, the same tempo. Yeah, yeah, it's just not no going to happen. Is it heart shaped no. blocked with a click? You know, it's just not no, going to work. It's got this push and pull. And a charm I, to I it. think that's what's, that's why I'm maybe going back to that mm. sort of thing. Not so much like, oh, let's go back and everyone recording tape like, like it, it was when I first started. But there are some elements that are missing from modern just recordings. Urgency. Mm-hmm. It's that, it's yeah. that sense that every band does it. You take the click away from a band that isn't necessarily r- rock solid session players. Yeah. And let's face it, not a lot of people are. No. They suddenly get like two, like factors times better, you know, two, yeah. three times better. It just sounds more free. It sounds the way that it's the way that they, it's their natural environment. And yeah. we, we talked earlier on about when we were in the kitchen about making this place feel like a home. Yeah. That's really important to me because it's really important that 
this place doesn't feel like this studio. Like, yeah. oh shit, you better get, you know, have your A game here because yeah. we're paying, you know, we could you could even break it down to like how much it costs <laughs> to mess up a take. Yeah. You know, like yeah, you yeah. don't want that pressure. No. You want to just have it like, let's just create something magical. And the only way you're going to do that is to keep somebody in the environment that they're used to being. So if they're all having a fun in a rehearsal room and playing live with lots of energy, why suck the life out yeah, of that totally. and go, right, you're playing to a click now? The biggest Just so you ever, can put a MIDI keyboard on? Yeah, yeah, sure. The biggest lesson I ever learned was take the, the, the accent off. Yeah. Like learning that accent, learning that was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Because if you, if you make an arse of a fill, there isn't that little voice going, yeah, got to get one. Yeah. Like there's beat one. If beat one becomes beat two, it's fine. Yeah. You know, and it means, and you can just kind of chill a wee bit. Because yeah. that, that accent is, that's like God on, almost on the take. And that becomes more important than the actual yeah. song. Mm-hmm. And also if you skip a beat or something, or yeah. intentionally. Yeah, yeah. There's a bar of three. Yeah. You know, yeah. suddenly you like your accent's on. Yeah. On two and you're like, wait, some Aye. people <laughs> just get. Yeah. I'm lost. Yeah. Aye. Um, so, I guess being a drummer then um, and an engineer and producer, how do you feel about things like technique and, and like classic drum sounds and like all that stuff? Is that a thing that's still massively yeah. important? Like Glenn John's sound versus close mic and, you know, it's a big oh, thing to talk so about. Much, but yeah, there's so much in that question. I mean, drumming technique is, is, is really important and it's not so much important as in, can you do a really intricate sort of like jazz beat, mm-hmm. you know, you know, 16s on mm-hmm. one hand or whatever, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, crazy, crazy sort of technical stuff. Yeah. If you just give me a kick and a snare and a hi-hat and you make it sound like, um, like respect from Aretha Franklin yeah, yeah, yeah. or yeah. ACDC, yeah, back in black the whole thing is you know which is you, yeah. all both those beats are kick snare hi-hat uh, mm-hmm. but they sound amazing yeah and they sound amazing because there is a degree of difficulty in there but but mainly it's just the sound of somebody who, who's really comfortable mm. who can balance themselves who can sit, hit a snare a kick drum and a hi-hat and make it all sound consistent make it all sound good and solid that's the difference to me between a really good drummer and a and a, and a bad drummer mm. Like I'm not interested in a drummer that can do the fanciest stuff mm-hmm. if they can't make a simple mm-hmm. kick snare hi hat sound good. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean anything to me. It's like the most important fundamental thing is that you get from A to B in a simple way, but just sound like yeah. it's brilliant. You yeah. know, and I think that that's sometimes lost in a lot of people. I think a lot of people are are kind of right. They've got their. You can see drummers that have got their eye in the fill rather than the the, the, the journey yeah. to it. Yeah, you know, you can and hear I've, that, I suppose, as well. Yeah. they can almost can, rush into it. Or, yeah, totally. Yeah. You hear that sort of like, you feel it build with them. You're like, yeah. oh, there's a fill coming. Yeah. There's a <laughs> big fill coming because yeah. I can tell the way that this, the hi hats getting louder or yeah. the snares getting quieter or something. Yeah. You know, you're giving it away. You're leaking these signals as a drummer. Should it's really fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's really it's quite obvious when you get a. Usually, obviously, an inexperienced drummer. Sometimes you get these people that just come in, and it is just that like somebody just hits a kick and a snare mm. and a dead simple beat, and you just go, "They're amazing." Yeah, that just sounds great. Yeah, and I think the best drummers are the ones that are 
really, really well balanced. Yeah. And the the ultimate drummers are the ones that are really well balanced, but can do all that technical stuff in a tasteful way. That's why God gets all the work here. Yeah, all that kind of beautiful stuff that all that kind of really interesting Aye. stuff that he'll do. For me, the I, I mean, it's a cliche, but like I love the sound of simple stuff that John Bonham does. I mean, although he, technically he just shows that he can do something incredible, mm-hmm. it's amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, the 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 I think um, the other drummers are like like Greg Sonny from uh, Deerhoof. Oh, okay, well. One of the most incredible drummers, just with like a kick and a snare and a yeah, a, a, like a a a big two rides together as a hi hat. You know, <laughs> he does like crazy stuff like that. Yeah. And he's just the most inventive and crazy drummer, but just insanely good. Uh-huh. And it's the total opposite side of the spectrum to this kind of tasteful soul drummer that maybe would have been on respect. But I think he just does it in it with fuller character. Yeah. So I like lots of different. I like lots of different people for different reasons. Yeah. yeah. Personality wise comes through. The drummer from Slint, for instance, who's right. also in uh the Four Carnation, the incredible drummer. Is it Brian McMahon? You check him I out. I can't remember. I'm terrible you know, for names. Do you know the drummer his name's Elan Rubin? Don't think so. No, he's like a big American session guy, but he plays right. now for Nine Inch Nails. Um, ah, right. plays for um, Angels and Airwaves, that kind of guy, but he's a right. proper rock drummer. Yeah. Um, but whenever he plays drums on a session, you can tell. You know what we like when you yeah. listen to a record, you can tell who's played on it because all of his records have this, this that personality that yeah. you're talking about. It just comes you through. Know, for me, he's that guy. Like he's yeah. like that. He's got a distinct sound, and apart from the fact he's a frightening monster of a player, like he can also just play it. And he can still thin. inject his own thing yeah exactly yeah Yeah, he has his own personality when he plays and you can tell like even if like say he's filled in on a session for one song you just know like that's Alan Rubin I can hear it because you can tell even by down to the way he like his nuances on the snare drum and all that kind of thing yeah maybe I'm just really sad and I notice that kind of thing (laughs) and I'm a uber fanboy but you know no it's important I think it's it's important to not I think for session musicians to be I'm supposed you get you get session musicians and then you get the top session musicians, and you're yeah. talking about Steve Gadd and yeah. and and this guy, obviously, mm-hmm. who can be machines, but still with character. And I, I think that's what yeah. the ultimate thing would be: is to be proficient enough, but still somehow manage to not make it sound like you've beat detective that, yeah, and mm-hmm. you've you've still got something within the plane that that maybe has a signature sound. Maybe every Maybe every third snare is off the beat or yeah. something that just becomes a wee thing. I don't know. Yeah, I remember know. Josh Freeze talking about that. I think Josh Freeze is one of the best session players around. He's amazing. And someone asking, you know, he's played on so many vanilla records. Right. That, like, he doesn't even, like, he's played on records where he's never met the artist. Yeah. So it's like he'll, he'll, he'll turn up to some sort of weird faceless studio at whatever time, knock out six tracks and go home. And then he'll be having a, he'll be doing a pee in the mall. And yeah. he's like, oh, I'm on the drums there. You know, he's just like, yeah. but then sometimes he just like, he, he's played on albums and he didn't know he played on them. Because his pals, he's been, he's you know, he's another child superstar comes out and he's having a, a dig at his mates because they played on the record and like, well, you played on it as well. And he hasn't even, he didn't realise. But because he's got yeah. to be that guy. He's yeah. got to be that guy that has zero personality. Yeah. You know, but then he gets to play on like Paul Westerberg records where it's like, 
proper old school rock and roll. Yeah. Where his, all his personality gets to come out. It's really fascinating to hear. Yeah, that's... Uh, these guys are incredible. It sounds a bit like the Motown folk. Yeah. When they were... Yeah. Like a lot of these people were just doing... They were just jobbing sessions. Have you seen 20 Feet from Stardom? Uh, no, I haven't seen that one yet, but I have seen Standing in the Shadows of Motown. Right. Which okay. is a similar, yeah, yeah. similar sort of thing. But yeah. I've heard... Somebody was talking about that the other day. It's amazing. It says it's incredible. Yeah, it's all yeah. about the backing singers. Yeah. And the, the That's Life girls are on it. Right. So Sinatra, That's Life, That's oh, Life. Yes, Those yeah. girls are on it. And they yeah. did like all the records of the time. And nobody wow. could remember their names. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's like these bass players, like, you know, the Motown bass players, Steve Cropper from, from yeah, the Atlantic yeah. stuff, mm-hmm. Muscle Shoals mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, yeah. All these people were playing on all these amazing records. I can't remember what they were doing because yeah. they were just asked, can you come in? I've got something you, we want to do. We've, we're going to work up this song. And the way that Motown worked is they used to swap singers and go like, okay, let's try this singer on that song. <laughs> so sometimes they don't even know it was going to be Stevie Wonder right. who was doing it. And years later, they'd be like, I'm pretty sure that's me playing yeah, that. Yeah, and they got paid like a pittance yeah. to do all these nothing super hits. Yeah, you know, amazing. Right, so since we're in a studio, <laughs> we, we um, we'll try and do some video footage for this later to share later. But um, Paul has a really beautiful vintage Slingerland kit. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's stunning. We're gonna it's stunning. Put you as vintage versus new still a thing because we get asked this question in the shop all the mm. time. Is vintage gear worth its salt? Because I think you were talking about, earlier on you were talking about tape being the magic wand. Yeah. I think a lot of people think that buying a vintage snare drum will be that thing. It'll give them that magic mm-hmm. sound. And I don't necessarily believe it. Because mm. I've I, had some vintage drums that I've got rid of because I've not been able to stand up to being hit. Yeah. That's that's the question about buying vintage. And it, it doesn't just apply to drums. It applies to all this equipment in here. Right. So this thing here I'm pointing at a compressor back here it's okay. a Teletronics under the main mono. under the main board under, some, the, under the main desk yeah there's some compression gear that you can't see but we'll photo it later it's um, so it's an old it was probably built in the 60s I think originally it's right. a mono valve compressor okay um, it sounds incredible um, this is a new reissue of it by by the company that um, owns the, the copyright in it right. they started making them again maybe 15 years ago so it's a new reissue so I bought it it's an old it's a no, it's a, in a as far as I can tell it's an exact replica right. within reason I mean there's probably some Germanian capacitor in there that <laughs> isn't exactly <laughs> a spec I and mean, you'll get some geek talking about how it's not the same but essentially it's the same now that new costs about Two and a half to three grand. Okay. You could probably spend upwards of that on a on an original one. Wow. Well, wow. But if you bought the original one, you you you're always running the risk of some element of it being, you know, being fifty years old or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is it, it possibly has some issues, and you don't know what that issue is. You just know, is this sounding right? This is the worst thing about audio gear, and it's probably the worst thing about drum gear, old drum gear. Is like, is this good? Uh-huh. It does sound old, yeah, but does it? Is it supposed to sound like that? Yeah. So when you, what I would always say about drum gear or audio gear is that if somebody's done a replica of something or is doing it basically to the standard that it was before. Um, and you're okay with the limitations that that might have compared to a modern drum if it's got the sound that you want 
I quite like the idea of buying a, 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 a new version of the same thing because the reason is you buy, a, like I bought the Ludwig, I came yeah, into yeah. the shop and I bought that 402. 402. Yeah. yeah, the newer one, yeah. Which, when I hit it, being a fan of John Borum, it was like, that's, that is, that's, that's that sound. Yeah. You know, and that's, I can, I can hear that. If I searched eBay for, <laughs> for a 1972 yeah. Superphonic, yeah. you know, chances are it's, it's maybe not going to sound quite as good. Yeah. You S know. Straight off that point, I bought a 1968 Ludwig 400, the five yeah. version as opposed to six and a half. And I couldn't agree more. I don't think it sounds nearly as good as a brand new one does. Yeah. Purely because I think, well, firstly, the hardware's made a lot better nowadays. Yeah. So the thing would stay in tune if it was brand new. Whereas this old one really doesn't. You know, yeah. like a lot of the um the lug inserts are all kind of rusted and kinda Yeah. But again in my head I was like, Oh well it's a vintage drum. It must sound good. So It doesn't always, you know, does it? Doesn't you know, always, so yeah. you you have to kinda weigh that up and sometimes you'll be lucky and you'll be you know, you'll find this one or, or this piece of equipment or a drum. It just hits the sweet spot and it's mm. perfect. So how do you stay subjective yeah. about it then? Well, you have to work out what it is you're after. Uh, you know, for me, hearing that drum that I bought, uh -huh. I didn't care. It was it was it was a new one. Right, right. It had the sound that was part of the character that I was looking for. Uh -huh. In the same way that if I buy this microphone I'm speaking into is a it's called a Bok two five one. It's a an exact replica of a Telefunken uh, two five one from nineteen fifties. Sinatra used to sing into this type of microphone. Yeah. Um, they've just done it new. But if you got that, if I found a, an original Telefunken two five one, it would be shot. Mm, yeah. The capsule would have sixty years of spit in it. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you really want to take that risk? Plus, it would probably cost twice as much of this as this one does. Do you think there's a romanticism then attached to? So, say you get the Ringo kit from Abbey Road, the record, mm -hmm. right? You're never, no one's ever going to play it like Ringo did. No. But there's this weird attachment to it all that, mm -hmm. like, oh well, I've got the Ringo kit, so it's going to be great. Yeah. It's like mm -hmm. it was a a record is just a snapshot of a time and place. Like he was playing that way on that very day, and that's the sound they managed to get out of that room. Yeah. It's a very, very strange world. It is very, it is, to that. it's very odd. And I think that, as far as drums are concerned, I, I find a lot of, maybe I just don't know enough. But the the when I was buying the pearl, I mean, this is, this is going, this is so, this is ridiculous. The pearl is actually probably classed as vintage now. So, <laughs> you know, so it's like a nineteen ninety six or ninety seven pearl masters custom that I bought. I still see that as a modern drum. I, I, it was, it was a new, it was a new idea. I remember at the time it was quite a new thing, and I yeah. tried, mm -hmm. I tried a lot of bass drums in the in the in the place, which was actually this. I think it was where the old drummers drummers only was. Uh yeah, really. Mr. Wow. Well, Mr. Music was about. I think it was Mr. across Music. the road and a little bit further down. Oh, on, but right. it was on Commerce yeah. Street. Yeah, there was there was a, there was an old drum shop, or was it a full music shop? I think I was only ever in it once, 
as a kid, so I can't remember if it was a full music shop or just a drum shop. We might have had, yeah, it might have been because we, we, I think we might have bought the bass amp there. As right, well. okay. I think we just went in with a publishing check and went, <laughs> we can buy stuff. <laughs> I want a drum kit and he wants a bass amp and Aye. we just bought stuff. So it was like, a, it was, yeah, you know, I didn't really know much about drums and I just tried lots, lots of different ones. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't, and it was around about the time when new metal was just beginning to sort of come into the, to the fore and it was, horrible clicky bass drums yeah yeah uh, drums with no that, tone yeah. yeah you know drums with just like really kind of aggressive tones or just no tones just like I, I really didn't like the the sound of it mm-hmm. but this pearl thing had a, a nice big I, I like kick drums that have a a, a tail to them right you know usually sustain I, I sustain mm-hmm. I can't do the technique for a bounce it mm-hmm so I need the drum to do a bit right. of the work because I'm just not a technically good enough drummer to bounce it. So, and I'm a bit of a heavy-handed drummer as well. So I'm really heavy on everything. Right, and like you know, I'm I'm not a big guy, but I I I hit them hard. I hit really hard. Right, and um, so I need the drums to to give me that. So I was like slamming the kick drum and slamming that batter side Aye. tight shut. So I needed that that boom to come from the, the resonant skin. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I, I got that from, from the peril. Mm-hmm. Um, I still see that as a, as, as, as still a slightly modern kit. I know they still, they still make them, don't they? Uh, yeah, they still make the master's range. I can't remember if that's a maple kit. I, I didn't check. It's it, a maple I, is it, is it, yeah. So yeah, there's, there's two versions of that. They make it currently uh, within their line and masters has been in the peril line since the nineties, you know, yeah. um, Pearl were one of those companies in the nineties that were much like Yamaha and Tama. They were really revolutionary. They were trying different things, and one yeah. of the first companies to sort of undrill uh, uh, the tom shells, if you like, so that they would have a mount that wouldn't penetrate the shell, so the drums were allowed to resonate. Because that a lot, I think, drums along that time, like eighties and nineties, when guys like Dave Wickle were becoming massive, mm-hmm. were all about, especially the Japanese companies. If you check their ranges out, are all about resonance. Yeah, this is much resonance as they can. So undrilled bass drums were becoming a thing. So you, well, that was that's exactly what I've got. So the mm-hmm. the toms, the the two toms that I use have the clamps on the yeah, top, on the hoop, on the yeah. Hoop, yeah, and the bass drums undrilled. Yeah, right. So this, so that became because of the close micing thing. It became massive in the eighties and super gating and all yeah. that. Where where just resonance wasn't allowed. I think a lot of drum companies went down that road because of that. Yeah, and, you know, and I, I think I. Naturally, I must have made that decision without actually. I'm, I'm only voicing it for the first time, really. Mm, this is, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. quite yeah. a long time later. So, yeah. I must have known exactly what kind of tone I was looking for, and something that gave me some, mm-hmm. gave me a bit of a, a character. But I did, I did used to hear a lot of the thin ply, older vintage drums, yeah. and I'm still, in some ways, trying to get my head around the fact that I love Motown. But I can never quite get that same sound because it's a very different micing technique. Well, that's what I was just about to ask about yeah. that. Yeah, because that, I mean, I know that certainly Blue Note, they were firing out records in the yeah. 50s and things like the bass player would stand right beside the drummer. So the upright bass would be picked up by the hi-hat mic. Right. That kind of thing. So yeah. how does that affect how you A, buy drums and B, record them you know those techniques they're used and to trying loads of different things or? i'm into trying different things but again the, the chances of finding somebody that 
it's not just me that that gets to choose. I mm-hmm. suppose it's like it's is the band going to come in with a double bass player? Right. And would they like to try that uh-huh. Glenn John's technique or would they like uh, to try something that, that just makes it sound quite different? Or did they want to just play it safe? They're paying money. They, yeah, they're, yeah. they're not paying me to experiment mm, for my mm-hmm. own pleasure. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's a kind of a balance between the expectations of any anybody that comes in and maybe my own curiosity to, to sort of like old drum sounds. There is a, I've, I'm fascinated like really kind of fascinated by why records with a bit of a, a like an old 50s record or an old 60s record, I still think the, the sound of those records can be incredible, mm-hmm. but they, they, have a, they have a degraded quality about them. They maybe don't have all the information that you do have um, in modern recordings. And how do you get that? today and and some people just think it's it's like you were saying that some people think tape uh-huh. or some people think a vintage drum is going to mm-hmm. be the thing a vintage drum is only one tiny aspect yeah, totally. of a whole load of other decisions that were made mm-hmm. and sometimes you think oh it's so it's a vintage drum and a tape machine mm-hmm. like no no mm-hmm. there's still preamps there's still micing techniques there's still microphones there's still rooms there's still the way that everything was recorded. There's still mm-hmm. the mixing desk that was used. There's the tape that was used to master it. And then there was the fact that it was probably sent to um, to a mastering studio to cut onto vinyl first. Yeah. So And that's all before we've even dealt with who's playing it. Yeah. yeah. And then you've got these musicians who are who are basically had never heard of copy and paste. Yeah. And and there was no such thing as, no. you know, like, oh, let's just Let's just let me just try that again. Yeah, a lot of these <laughs> sessions were like, no, you we're paying you to do a job. Yeah, yeah we're totally. not paying you to mess up. Yeah, um, but what head did he use on that <laughs> sneer? Yeah, you know I know. I mean? So like, it's like, and you probably find these old guys are just laughing. A lot of people nowadays yeah. going, I just used what was there. That yeah. old thing. I heard the story. About, so I'm, I'm the one for the story tonight. Um, James Jamerson, the famous bass player. Yeah. Like his tech put new strings on his bass and he made him go into the bin and get the old strings back out. It's like, why yeah. did you restring my bass? And I asked you to, man. It's like, my sound is just all in the strings. That so that, my yeah. fingers, you know? So, because his bass wasn't, new strings would make it too resonant. Yeah. You know, like, go and get them. Yeah. <laughs> go and put them back <laughs> put on. Put them back on. Quite right. That's what, so, what you know. Yeah. yeah. You know, cause that, and that leads me on to heads, like new heads versus old heads. I mean, yeah. like, I've heard guys be like, Every time you take new head, and I've heard guys like played on a 70s sonar kit with the original heads, it sounded immense. Right. Well, I mean, we used to, this is interesting because we, we used to tour and it got to a point where we were touring like for months, you know, we were away for months and we had a tech, um, Ali was doing, uh, Ali was doing everything um, on on stage, and basically, like I remember day one, uh, we always started in Toronto on American tours, for instance. And day one, when Ali was involved, he was he was just um, say, right, can you set up your kit? But he says it's the last time you're going to set up your kit all the way through the, the show. I was like, what are you talking about? It's like I set up my kit. And he says, no, you've set up the way you like first night. And then I'm going to mark it all and it's going to come back like that every single night and you tell me if I, if I got it wrong. I said, look, Ali, you don't need to. I can do it. 
He said, no, you're just going to get in the way. He said, it's not an ego thing. It's yeah. not like a, you know, keep the drummer away from the audience or anything like that. It's just, I know what what's going on at any time. Right. I'll do the kit. I'll get it all done. I don't need you to trip over stuff and get in the way. So, like, he came in and he would do that. And that was when we had a bit more of a budget. So I used to be the kind of person who would be like, I would play a snare skin until it burst. Right. Or it was obviously pitted. So <laughs> you didn't have the money. But then we were doing these tours in America and you couldn't like be playing in front of lots of people with, you know, a snare skin that's about to go. So we had a thing where it was like every every three nights or something, I think it was every third gig, it'd be a new snare. Because he said, well, look at it, you've gone through probably an hour sound check, an hour and a half show, uh, you've done that three times. You know, there's a lot of playing on it. Um, plus you hit pretty hard, so <laughs> let's just change it. And I do remember thinking it's overkill, but every time it was a fresh skin on it, it sounded better. Mm-hmm. And it, it, maybe I just never got to the point where the skin you know, like an old teapot got to the point where it was like <laughs> years of use and it had a, had a, had a feel yeah. or a sound or a taste. I never got to that after three nights. I never even got to that after probably three months. Yeah. I can maybe understand if somebody's had a skin from the 1970s that, all right, okay, maybe, they certainly haven't let me loose on it because I would have pitied that thing, by the, <laughs> you know, like by 1971. So um, I, d- I don't know what the answer is to that. I think maybe... Um, I quite like the sound of a fresh snare skin, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not so sure about fresh toms, right? Because they can then be way too, way too ringy. Toms, like to me, are like things you sneak up on and you try and capture when they sound right. You can just I could pick up one of those toms from from the back room and hit it and go, oh shit, it's it's, it's that the sweet spot. Let's take this through now, and I've got a kit that's all five different colours. Oh, great! Because it's like this one sounds good right now uh-huh. for some reason. It's maybe the way somebody else tweaked it last week, uh-huh. and it might not even have sounded good now. But now that you, they've changed it and it's settled and it's sat in that cold room and it's coming into this warm one, it's got a sweet spot right now. So let's use it. And I think that toms are really odd like that, so you can. I find it really hard. I mean, it was great when, when you were in helping me with the Mogwai stuff yeah, because yeah. you knew how to get this consistent tone with a new skin on a tom. Yeah. I could never do that. I just I just wait for toms to to ripen like pears. <laughs> <laughs> they like they t- there's a sweet spot of probably like ten minutes with a tom. For me, I, I don't disagree that there's a, certainly a sound sweet spot. We get asked this mm. a lot here about mm-hmm. tuning. Yeah, I think every drum has a sweet spot somewhere. Yeah. You know, and it might not be where you want it to be, unfortunately. Yeah, you, you know, might be fighting against the natural. Yeah. yeah, or it might not be where you want it to be with that head on it, or you know, or with yeah. that stick tip. Because that, I mean, the size of stick will totally affect how it sounds yeah. and all that as well. The tip on the stick as well, yeah, yeah. Will massively yeah. change. Totally change it. As well, there's well. all these things that I'm kind of learning over the years about about things, and maybe I'm, I'm with the Slingerland, I may be fighting something mm-hmm. because I want that to sound like the pearl. Right, so to put this into context, Paul brought the shop, this beautiful slinging on snare as well that we had to... Oh, you're talking yeah. about the, the, the talking about the bass drum. Oh, right, the sorry, bass, yeah. The slinging on bass yeah. drum, which I did bring in. Is and it 70s, that kit? 1973, I right. think. Wow. Or that's the series. Right. I don't know whether it was that was bought in 73, but uh, Gene Krupa, 1973. Right, okay. Yeah. 
So it'll be famously like, used as a fifties kit in Back to the Future. The oh, under, wow. under yeah, the sea yeah, dance yeah, scene yeah. totally no yeah, way. Yeah. is a Jean Krupa nineteen seventy three. And probably in similar colours, it's yeah. an oyster shell or whatever. You Brilliant! Call it. Wow! And uh, drum geeks went on, on, on <laughs> online. Totally that's true. that's impossible. That's impossible. You've got a 1973 kit in 1958. That's ridiculous. <laughs> How did they make they're that arguing, mistake? They're arguing the theory of a DeLorean that goes back in time. <laughs> wow! With a drum kit. Wow! Wait a minute. What was that Hold TV on. show? Yeah. Mindhunter. Do you watch that? Yeah. Set no. in the 70s and there's like a DW collectors in it. Oh, yeah. That's like, right. Oh, come on, guys. Like, you could have at least, with the budget on this TV show, surely, surely, you know, someone who has like an old school kit that you could send, they put on the show. What, yeah. what bit was that? They go that. into, a, uh, they go, in season two, they go into a recording studio to talk to a guy. That, that's right. in connection with uh, one of the, with the main, um, the main suspect. Yeah. And there's a DW collector sitting in the corner, like, Brand new 2000s no, yeah. hardware, just like, no, well, no. that's great. Yeah, that <laughs> this, is, this is just taking me completely out of it. Yeah, so it's taking yeah. me way back. On a more recent note as well, see the Bohemian Rhapsody, uh-huh. right? Yeah. See yeah. when the, the end when they played Live Aid, uh-huh. right? And it's maybe just me that's noticed this, but I'm convinced that see when they do like the pan round of all the band uh-huh. playing to all these thousands of people, I am sure that the drummer, the guy who's playing Roger Taylor, uh-huh. is playing a 2018 K Sweet Crash. There's A Customs on the stage as well, and they didn't get invented till the 90s. There you go. See, okay. So right. maybe yeah, maybe it's all over it. Aye. Ridiculous. They're just drums. They just don't get any respect in the they film do business. Not, man. You know, they, you we're going to bring it back under yeah, the yeah. CDS together. Do you know what? We should have somebody, we should go out as like drum. You know how you get music supervisors? Yeah, like yeah, totally. Any film <laughs> with drums involved. Aye. Like, hold like, on, that drum consultant. That, yeah. that stand. Wouldn't have been to- that's not going to fly. You know, like, that's there's going to be a guy that back row the cinema, yeah. throwing something at the screen. Don't you <laughs> yeah. get it? <laughs> We're going to get complaints, guys. We're going to get complaints. I would love to be that guy, just like walking about with like a clipboard, see like a yeah. supervisor on a building site. It's, it's like, like no, continuity. No, no, no. It's like the people that snip cigarettes for different takes, <laughs> so you can always have the same length of <laughs> that's cigarette a thing. Yeah, oh, amazing. Just for us, just been scooped. You snip the cigarette and then you're like smoking a wee bit, and then they're like, "All right, okay, so now we're onto the." Three lines later, you can't have the cigarette get longer. <laughs> you got no to do these things. That's amazing. Except we can have a 1970s kit in the 50s. Yeah, yeah. You can always go as far as like actually that that sticks a bit. That's a bit chipped in that scene. I do. But now yeah. it's a fresh stick. But they wouldn't. Wait a I, minute. I guarantee, <laughs> right? They wouldn't have got the guitar wrong that he played on. No, because I'm sure he plays on a Fucking Cherry Red guitarist. 335 or something yeah. in that film. Totally nerding out. Drums get no respect. No, no respect. No. None. So, um, it's no secret you've worked with a lot of the same bands over your career. You know, Mogwai being an example. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you sustain and keep sort of long term relationships when these bands come in with uh, different what's the word I want um, concepts? Uh, when you, you know you know how they play so you'll know martin yeah. from mogwai really well yeah you know how martin plays he's loud hits him yeah. pretty hard really unusual setup weird angles and trying to get mics in and all that yeah. you know and so um do, is it very much just not customer service but you know you just give the band their place without influencing it too much or do you get to influence these guys now because you've worked with them and they trust you i suppose it depends if you if i'm hired as a as an engineer and, and most of most of the times when I'm 
mean, you're talking about somebody like Mogwai. Um, I'm hired as a as a producer, right? So, engineer. I do I do production and engineering at the mm-hmm. same time. So, it, I suppose back when we first did their first album, it it didn't really have a name. Mm-hmm. It was just recorded by me. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose the term production was something that just came later by, by proxy. Uh, so. Yeah, it's hard to tell. I mean, I think a lot of bands go through different stages in their career. They maybe want to try something new. Mm-hmm. They maybe do two albums with one person and then go, you know what, let's mix it up. Let's go with someone else. Mm-hmm. You know, Mogwai are, are, are that type of band that have right. been, you know, we did some early stuff and there was a period where I didn't do anything with them. And mm-hmm. then they came back to me for a couple of albums in a row and some soundtrack stuff. And you know, so that you know, in the last album they were away with Dave Fridman, right. who was somebody else they worked with. Just after the first album, they did Dave Fridman did the second album. Oh right, okay. Dave Fridman has also worked on Delgado's records as oh, well. Okay. So there's a kind of almost like a family of of maybe people that if you're talking about Mogwai and 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 certainly Delgado's, there was a, a similar group of people with myself, Tony Dugan, Dave Fridman, right. And Andy Miller as well, who used to be an engineer at Chem 19. Right. So it's like um, peers almost. Yeah. So people that they know and trust and that we yeah. know and trust, and, you know, people that we all get to, you know, that everyone's got a set, a slightly different style. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think as a, as a producer and as an engineer, you've got to, you've got to kind of be able to take it on the chin when you're maybe not called up for the job mm-hmm. because you might not be all the time. Um, it's it can be hard, and it was something that I found really hard when I was younger. Uh-huh. But I have to remind myself, like these decisions that are being made by bands are sometimes not personal. They're just like, do you know what? We just fancy something different. Yeah, you know, we want to go somewhere else. Mm. But the good thing is that certainly in the case of Mogwai, that they have tried lots of different things, and I think it's maybe just like there's a natural sort of like we tried that last time. Let's move move on to this one. And, you know, maybe I'll get a shout for the one after this. So, you yeah, know, like, maybe so. since they're banned because there's no singer. Yeah. So they want to try to pull a different sound out yeah. or something, you know. A lot of people, a lot of the decisions that, that some bands will come and say, look, we're not going to, we're not going to come to Kim 19 for this one and work with you on it because we're, we, we want to get to Glasgow. Yeah, you yeah. Know, we just mm-hmm. want a holiday. Aye. We want to go to a residential studio somewhere because yeah. we can. Yeah, yeah. or sure. someday we'd be coming back and going. We want to come to Chem Nineteen because the last time we went to a res- residential one, it was a nightmare. Right. Mm-hmm. So you've got all these different. Depends on what way a band's going and what yeah. how they feel. So, so many dynamics get, that are at your control. Yeah, there's yeah. lots of things that aren't just about did I mix it well or you know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you know you, you just got to be that safe pair of hands and just somebody that you can, you, you know, that, that everyone has a good experience with. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully like that'll, that'll resonate. That'll still be with mm. somebody and they go away and then, they, you know, oh, let's, let's go back there again. Mm-hmm. You know, they get that mm-hmm. feeling to come back and it's. I guess that relates yeah. to the whole environment that you create in here as well with the yeah. whole being comfortable because you want to make sure someone's comfortable in here and, they give a performance that's very natural and not like okay the red light red light fever yeah. like you you know like. yeah it's a it's a thing you know so trying to make it a comfortable situation I think a lot of people do choose studios based on 
comfort and facilities and mm-hmm. comfort could mean they walk out their flat and five minutes they're in the studio mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or it could mean they don't ha- they can get away from their flat and the place they're usually in mm-hmm. and they're not going to bump into their their pals and end up having to go to go for a pint or something you yeah. come to you come to somewhere like here and there's no there's no pubs worth going to around here <laughs> so like you, it's a very different sort of choice you know some people are like yeah i want i want to be able to go and get a flat white yeah although you and do now, have a super nintendo through there that i reckon a lot of people probably spend a lot that's, of time that's on. that's a secret weapon never mind <laughs> the back catalogue of albums that have been recorded here yeah, exactly. there's, there's a snes, it's a SNES Gold yeah. night, get on get on <laughs> oh, no. oh, people that love that it's incredible <laughs> Yeah, it's it's. I guess, and you're dealing with artists as well. I guess so. Either, you know, yeah. they can be not contentious people, but they can be um, emotional people. Yeah, and the one thing to bear in mind with artists is that even the ones that are, can, like you say, contentious or can be emotional, they are the 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 most arrogant artists would probably be at the least arrogant, at the least arrogant point when they're just about to sing in a studio mm-hmm. for the first time uh, a new song or mm-hmm. a new a new idea so when i see them when i work with people I, I i always have to bear in mind that no matter what a reputation is everyone is vulnerable yeah. i don't know any artist that's bulletproof that just comes in and wait till you hear this 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 is gold you know, this is going to be, this yeah. is going to be huge. You know, no artist is like that. Everyone is a fucking wreck. You know, <laughs> is this good? Am I doing something that is ridiculous? Well, within reason, everyone, you know, a yeah. lot of people aren't. But, you know, the, but by and large, there is a vulnerability to artists in the studio that you would be surprised that some of the, some of the best some of the most confident artists and it's whether it's not just when they're performing it can be just over the course of an album mm. there's a kind of there's a general there can be a bit of a fear when you're doing a record especially one that's actually quite groundbreaking or one that mm. is that is really good anything that's worth it so you know artistically is probably pushing things a wee bit for the artist mm-hmm. so there's always going to be that kind of slight fear that this is this could be amazing but it could also be crap mm. and we don't really know yet right. and we don't know what the public's going to think mm. what the fans are going to think so yeah. there's a real fear in a lot of people and that's part of my job again is to make this comfortable to make the experience comfortable to reassure them in ways that that maybe they, they if if they've got to know me over the years then they, they can trust yeah i also have to be critical if if i think it's valid because that's kind of what some people will pay me for mm. they'll say is this okay and i'll say okay and i can then say i like that aspect of it and i'm not so sure about that and if they if they kind of had this kind of slight thought in the back of their mind that an aspect of it is wrong and i pinpoint it they go absolutely yeah i'm so glad you said it I, i'm i'm going to throw that out and i'm not going to do that or mm-hmm. you know there's lots of different things mm. that go through people's heads when they're when they're recording it's not just a simple thing of i have to record this vocal and this guitar yeah it's it's everything you know there's a lot of different stuff 
it becomes a very collaborative process yeah. with yourself as well. Yeah, it can be. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to know when to speak, not when not to speak, mm. when to encourage, when the encouragement's becoming annoying yeah mm-hmm. or you know is it going to sound false you know you can only say that's amazing so many times yeah you know people start to think that you're talking crap yeah so you've got to you've got to show that you're listening to what they do so like you know sometimes when when i'm working with people i don't know like a drummer that i don't know for instance if we bring it back to drums i'd like to hear them do maybe three or four takes and then maybe if there's a technique or something I would I would like them to try in a chorus, say open it up a bit more or mm-hmm. try a different fill or try a different technique. Um, pushing them and just seeing where the limits of of their maybe their their comfort zone is or where their abilities are mm-hmm. or trying different things and then just getting a feel for them. Because when I know a drummer well, same goes for singers or guitar players is that you kind of know you know the sweet spot with them right and you know that you can do three takes and you'll you'll have it mm-hmm. with some drummers you know like with martin for instance from mogwai if we've got the time and we've got the framework of the track and he's working to a click and maybe it's, there's been a few times in the last couple of records that it has been like there's been a a like a quite an elaborate demo that comes in from the start. So mm-hmm. you've basically got the track there to, to play to mm-hmm. and you maybe replace things as you go. So it might be based around a drum machine loop or a, or a keyboard sequence. So then Martin's got to sort of fit on top of that. So sometimes you don't, you feel quite like to tell people to go away. Oh, and it'll okay. just be two of you, just be the two of us. And he'll just be like, just give me it again. Just give me it again. And I've got to listen and try and understand what he's thinking. And he he's very symmetrical. He thinks, you know, I've, I've, I've suggested things to him and he's kind of blown my mind about how he's kind of went, I can't do that because see if I do that, Phil, that is two toms there with that one, that won't be symmetrical to like what the first verse. I do a, a reverse version of that. And then two minutes later, I'm doing another version. He's thinking about like crazy stuff, like sim- symmetry within right. the songs. Symmetry. Like there's there's been times where I'm like, I had no idea that that's what you were doing. He's like, no, no, that's all. It's all kind of like, like it's a lot more planned than you might think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sometimes when you know working with someone, you got to find out what what it is that's important to them. Uh-huh. So for me, it was like, I'm not sure I like that fill there. He's like, yeah, but it has to be there. <laughs> because it's, it happens in a slightly different form somewhere else and that is locked down so therefore it has to happen here so it's just kind of like okay that's great that's what makes you as you know the, the, the drummer that you are yeah and mm-hmm. I guess it also means that well it's super considered isn't it yeah and it's like this sort of global picture of the whole song mm-hmm. absolutely he's There's, not just playing a fill because he can yeah. play a fill there he's like he's as you said he's got it all locked out in his head yeah know? It's kind of that thing where if you do the same fill, you know, twice, mm-hmm. at, you know, one after the other, it sounds stupid. Yeah, yeah. But he's like that between, <laughs> like, different different verses, you know, yeah. or, or 
mm. totally different sections of a song. You'd be like, oh no, I can't, or I have to do it. You know, it's that kind of thing. That's pretty fascinating. It's mm -hmm. kind of interesting way to make music. Mm -hmm. You know, I've never really considered it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure there's other songs where, you know, that's one in particular where he was he was quite precise about how he wanted it. Uh -huh. But it was maybe the way that album was, like Rave Tapes, which is the one you were helping me with. Oh, I helped on Le Revenant. Oh, was it Le Revenant? Yeah, right, that, okay. was, yeah. that was the f So Rave Tapes was the first one I did it. Okay, Castle Doom. At Castle Doom, uh, yeah. Yeah. So the one I did here, Hardcore Won't Ever Die, we did the drums in, in here. Right. And then mixed it at Castle of Doom. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, so to again, to contextualise that, I got a call one day really randomly in the shop from Niall, who's, was he yeah. Martin's Tech? Is he still Martin's Tech? I think he might be sometimes, yeah. Right. Not and sure. Mogwai were making a, they were doing the soundtrack for a documentary called Le Revenant, which is the return, it's all about zombies. There's a French oh, cool. zombie, doc, uh, doc, uh, not documentary, a French zombie TV series. TV series. Mm. That got turned into a, I think it got the US did it as well. Anyway. I think there's another version, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The Returned it was called. Mm. And Mogwai were doing the music for it. So they asked me to go in and I had to tune the kit, but it had to be tuned to like a D minor triad. Mm. So they had the piano in Castle of Doom they were playing the chord and I had to get the toms and the bass drum to sound like a D minor. But what was really hip and also mega difficult was he had a 22, 12, and then two 16s. And oh. one of the 16s was lower pitched than the bass drum. Whoa. In order to get the sound they wanted. And you know when you tune a drum, you'll you'll get this as well. When you hit it, it sounds like a basketball. Mm -hmm. You know, like, have you ever had a basketball hit the floor and yeah. there's that sound? Could I get rid of this sound? And it was all, it was all anybody could hear and I couldn't hear it for ages. And then I heard it and I was like, Ah, shit, right, okay. It took me like two and a half hours or something to, to tune this kit. It yeah. was bonkers. Um, but we it, got was a, it was a tough ask. I mean, it was, like, Aye, it but was, it was great. It, I, I but it was such a minimal score as well. Yeah. So these things were really important in the context of the music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It wasn't like you were just going to blast, like it wasn't like one of the ones, the face melting guitars. No. You yeah. know, it was a lot of that stuff was, was, was uh, tonally quite sparse. And so I had never done anything cool. like that before, so it was like totally eye-opening like to me. out your comfort zone a bit? Or? Oh, yeah, massively, yeah. because you can't just throw a head on and go like... Right, there you go. go. So, I mean, we had he heads on, we had heads off. In the end, I think one of the floor toms had no bottom head. Mm -hmm. That was how we achieved it, because the bottom head was causing too much resonance. Mm -hmm. um, so when you've got to try and make a floor tom sound lower than a bass drum... That, just mm -hmm. even that sentence? Yeah, it was pretty bonkers. metal. But what, what really sold it was like you would hear it through the mic mm -hmm. so like you'll agree that a drum sounds wildly different in a control room yeah. versus in a live room mm -hmm. especially when you're trying to do something like that it's unbelievable the difference because a microphone will only pick up so much yeah mm. so does i take it, it just picks up the core frequency really it really depends on where it is right. what type of uh, polar pattern it mm. has so i mean it was with drums and making up drums in the studio, it's is is it's a fantastic way of learning the craft of engineering. Whereas a singer, usually quite controlled, and it, it it's you know they're there. You don't you don't have to position it because they're they're positioning themselves. Whereas yeah. a, a a drum and the sound of a drum and the tuning of a drum is 
is really just it's so subjective as to how far you move it closer or further away angled slightly differently and the factor that you don't ever record one thing at a time you're usually doing yeah okay there's on on the drum kit obviously there's like what usually five five four or five drums themselves yeah. and then you've got the extraneous stuff so you might double mic the snare mm-hmm. you might double mic the bass drum you might use the sub kick which we talked about earlier on the then you've got overheads you've got yeah. hi-hats room you might even yeah. spot mic symbols i think you, spot mic the, you were making the room that day in all sorts oh yeah definitely make yeah. the room i mean it's like the i, I mean i thought i'd learned a lot I, 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 it was a quite an education uh, last year when we had steve albini who's one of my favorite producer uh, engineers not producers he, he hates the term producer but he's a he did, he did like in utero yeah, yeah. so famously yeah so the famous sort of drum sound that he gets was fascinating because he came in he did a he did a talk he did a day i think it's still online you can you can see it so basically he mic'd up the kit with all he brought some specific drum mics and he mic'd up the kit the way he would normally make them up make it up in that room and i remember martin johnson was in and he put on the headphones and he did the click thing which is the first intro to Serve the Servants? Is that the first song in, oh, in Utero? Scentless, Scentless Apprentice? Is it? I ca- yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. Says, that's the one. And he just said, oh my God, even just the click yeah. of the drumsticks counting in, he says, that's just in Utero. Right. And um, a lot of it was, so I got to see how the science behind making up drums, it was, it was absolutely fascinating because, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm a drummer. <laughs> Yeah. And there was some things that that he showed he showed me and showed everyone and he's quite open with his techniques. Right. That was like a total penny drop moment, like, yeah. all right, okay, I get it. So there's so many things. I mean we had the hairdryer thing out, the the thing where you the the, the drum kit was, was basically a little bit pitted and some of the stick marks in the uh-huh. in the floor tom. Oh yeah, I've heard about this. He got this um air gun, right hair dryer, but it looks like a hairdryer. High power, don't ever, don't ever try it on your hair. <laughs> it's very high powered. It's uh, basically a, a, a blowtorch without fire, but it's uh, so it's an air gun, hot air gun. And he just put it over the the skin, and these pits popped up yeah, and just flattened themselves out. So it's is it Kevlar that a lot of these skins mylar, mylar. Mm-hmm. So basically, that's basically it can you can almost turn it back into a liquid again, right? By doing that, so you you heat it up uh-huh. till it becomes pliable again and then you let it go and it just basically settles so it's back into being almost a new skin right um so it was great to salvage that some some sounds yeah, yeah. there's other things like said like if you if your hi-hats are too loud in the room or you just find them too loud get your keys and put them between the two hi-hats. so that cut mm. them by like 5 db what do you know you're doing the shop tomorrow absolutely (laughs) little things like that like crazy stuff making up toms making up like top and bottom Uh so there was a lot of talk about what you were saying about the the top head and the role of the top head Uh the batter the batter side and the resonant side so he was basically explaining which i never really thought about even as a drummer which is a disgrace 
<laughs> the, the top the top head is basically your your fundamental hit your your attack yeah and the resonant head is your your kind of boom your tone your tone mm-hmm. yeah so i never really thought about that before and he described it if you if you were to have your bottom head tuned lower than your top head then you'll get a kind of boom yeah it sounds like sort you're of fall yeah. off yeah mm-hmm. whereas if you tune it higher which is quite rare you'll get it the opposite way you'll mm-hmm. come up mm-hmm. So the tone will just come up. Um, I'd never thought about these things before. I really should have, but you know, I, I hadn't. But also, making up both top both skins was really quite interesting because, I mean, I've always thought I, I use too many mics in the drums. I'm sometimes using like 14, 15 mics on the drums. Oh wow! But you know, he's if if you've got a three if you've got like a five piece kit and you've got you've got double you've double making every single drum effectively yeah you know top and bottom of each tom top and bottom snare and two outside your kick mm-hmm. you're gonna have a lot you're gonna have a lot and then you've got room mics you've got outside kick mics you've got spot mics on certain cymbals hi-hats um so you've got these things you've got an outside you had an outside kick outside kit pair just pointed left and right just to gather the sound he didn't like the sound of cymbals being hit over like room uh, mics looking down on the kit he was all about low stands looking low across the kit there was a one over the drummer's shoulder there was a an ingenious bass drum which i don't know why no one makes this bass drum mic anymore i mean when you think about inside you put a, a microphone inside a bass drum and you've got a lot of times you've got you've got it in a cardioid pattern which is basically front facing Mm -hmm. it's going to get what it's looking at Uh but you're just going to get that front skin if you put a a mic really like a a really wide um cardioid mic inside a bass drum you're going to get the inner boom that beach ball sound uh-huh. which a lot of people don't want uh-huh. you know it's like a ping yeah it's got a resonance a lot of people put towels in or pillows in just to completely deaden it but if you do want a bass drum that's still got a bit of resonance you kind of want the sound of the skins sort of moving uh-huh. um so he said well i've got this figure of eight bass drum that was made by bear dynamic back in the maybe 70s 80s extremely rare like really hard to find i've looked everywhere for them i can't find any um and i don't know why nobody does it and he, he said i don't understand why no one makes mics like these anymore because you could put them in a bass drum and you get both sides of the skin if you got a, to put it in context a figure of eight mics has a a front looks at the front and looks out the back uh-huh. but it excludes everything around the sides Right, okay. So you're getting, oh, if you put okay. a microphone inside in the middle of a bass drum, facing the front skin and effectively facing the back skin, because it's it's dual, yeah. it's got a dual-sided mm-hmm. input, it excludes all the crap you don't want. And you get the resonant skin reverberating very nicely and you don't have any problems with phase because when you have two microphones on the same source, you introduce this thing called phase, which can cancel the frequencies yeah yeah so if you put one drum in there that's a figure of eight that's perfect 
I've been searching for a year and a half for this drum, <laughs> this mic that he had. It sounded incredible, you know, it's great. It's exactly what you need for a bass drum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it's certainly what I was looking for if I'm going to keep the tone of a drum. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so there's a little, there's, it was a real education. Also, room mics, part of that ambient sound, the thing that he does is, is delay, puts mics on the floor. Yeah, I heard about this. So, how do, I'll try and explain this very quickly. The thinking behind the mics on the floor. Right. It's called a boundary mic technique. Okay. So a boundary being either a wall or a floor. So the floor in this case, right. So um, you imagine like the physics of it. You've got a snare drum that's been hit, and say that snare drum's two and a half feet off the ground. Mm-hmm. So you're hit. You hit it with a stick. The sound, the first direct sound, emanates from the from the drum. And say you have a microphone with a with a microphone uh, a stand with a microphone on it. Uh, what you get is the mic, the direct hit going straight to that microphone. You get a very clear hit, uh-huh. slightly delayed because sound takes a while to get to that microphone. Right. You know, fractions of a second, but still delayed. The second sound that hits that drum is the bounce off the floor in front of the microphone. If you imagine like mm-hmm. you're throwing a basketball, you could throw a basketball to somebody. Yeah. It goes direct to them or you could bounce it off the floor. Uh-huh. So that second bounce is quite loud because it's usually off a wooden floor. It's what it does is it's slightly delayed and it slightly smears the sound a wee bit. And then you've got a third one, which maybe is like if you threw a basketball to someone by bouncing off the floor and then off a sidewall and then into their hands. Mm-hmm. So you get your third so reflection. So got, all these. But all these things are slightly more delayed and they're also as they progress as the sound bounces off maybe two or three more walls, it gets quite quiet and it doesn't really bother you anymore. But the main issue with a microphone on a stand is that first bounce off the floor Uh because that's still going to be quite loud. So what happens when you put it on the floor? You turn them both into the same thing. Your direct hit eliminates that first bounce. And eliminates that first reflection, so you get a clearer, you get a clearer response at the microphone. I'd never thought of that. I was thinking <laughs> it's just logical, you know. So a lot of things like that, and then the the idea of delaying it is just to get the sense so that the microphones are further away, and you get a louder. You kind of get the sense of it's it's being compressed in a way because it's louder. But it's delayed. It, it, it kind of has its. It, it's it's like it's compressed without it compressing, mm-hmm. without any artifacts of it being compressed. Schooled, man. Wow. Schooled. Just where we've got you as well. I've we've we get a lot of questions about this in the shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mentioned to you a bit earlier on about home recordings. Sure. We have a lot of guys come into the shop asking our approach, and a lot of the time we don't really have much of an answer. There's like products that have came out recently like the yamaha ead10 like okay where it's basically like it's like a trigger that you put on yeah. the bass drum but it's also got a microphone on the top of it okay so it picks up the full kit yeah um and stuff like that now is great but some people maybe just don't have the funds for it or they maybe don't have the space or they maybe just don't have an outlet for it so mm-hmm. what would be some of the what in your mind how could someone achieve like a, a great recording in their house or how could anybody achieve that it's quite hard in the house because 
I mean, I don't want to sound like somebody that's trying to sell a studio. But that's the one thing that keeps our studio alive. Yeah. Um, it is actually like one of the most common things that, that we do is somebody will say, well, we want to track drums. Mm-hmm. I got an email today. Somebody, right. somebody, a friend I know in Dundee mm-hmm. saying, I've got an album all ready to go, but there's five tracks I want drums on. Mm-hmm. Can I come in and just book it for a couple of days or a day mm-hmm. and see how it goes? So, I mean, I mean, we just talked in length about different microphones you could go into preamps you could get into different things i mean of course you could get a really good sound mm-hmm. randomly uh, for me i'm all about room sounds right. whether it's a dead room sound or a big room sound it doesn't matter if it sounds good in that room that's great the the thing that i find most unnatural about some recordings is like i mean we're, we're, i mean i take it you're you're all, you're all drummers here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you ever put your ear on your snare drum and then hit it with a stick? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It doesn't sound good. No. So why 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 do people make it up there? It's mainly because separation and but it doesn't sound good. Mm-hmm. It doesn't it's not a natural place to listen to drums. So sometimes if I've got a limited amount of maybe tracks, what I will try and do is, is is focus on the one one drum mic that might encapsulate the whole sound of the kit mm-hmm. and work from there. Because if you're if you're you know, if you're trying to do it on the cheap and you maybe don't have a lot of microphones, this might work as well. Mm-hmm. But if you can get a decent maybe a decent condenser and find a sweet spot that gets you everything, maybe just outside the kit the kick, maybe a couple of feet out. Mm-hmm. You might find that with a decent preamp and a light bit of compression or something, you've got everything that you need to an extent. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to record and sound replace everything with different things, then that that thing that you're talking about, like maybe triggers, yeah. is exactly because all you want is the information by that point. Yeah. yeah, you're going to replace it by something else. But I do think that if you it was a, you, you have to maybe go back to, right back to what the old school sort of like 50s and 60s recordings it would maybe be like sometimes it's like two mics on a kit mm-hmm. I'm sure that sometimes it's just one like in a lot of jazz recordings mm. it's just like put a mic vaguely in the direction of the drummer mm-hmm. usually treated with absolute disdain drummers so it's like <laughs> that person over there that non-musician so I think um, you could maybe take that approach and then you just go for the um, start one mic at a time, but mm-hmm. try and always try and try and capture everything with one mic. That might be the, the the best way forward. And even if it's not what you eventually have, you will find that like when I'm making up a kit, and I know that the room sounds really important, or the 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 tone of the kit in the room. I'll start with the overheads. Oh. I won't start with a kick drum or a snare drum which is kind of a typical thing to do. But I'll say, like, I need to get this one right and because the core of the sound is maybe going to be based around this microphone mm-hmm. or, or that this pair, a pair of colds, overhead ribbon yeah. mics. If we can get them right, and then the rest is actually just shading in. The rest of it is just like, okay, well, now you can get some definition on a kick mm-hmm. and you can get some definition on a snare and you can get some left and right positioning on, a, on toms. 
the Glenn Johns technique is great. I don't know if you yeah, know like, of that. Yeah, so. yeah, famous. One on the bass drum, one at the side and one above. Is that right? One at the right of the floor, Tom? Uh, yeah, I think it's... Um, I think it's... Is it three? The, the overheads basically are one over the hi-hat. Okay. So you take it from the snare. So one is over the snare and slightly over the hi-hat. Right. And then one is same distance from the snare as the overhead one. But looking across the floor tom to the snare right so it's like an l-shaped thing okay. a lot of people think of of drums as uh, symmetrical to the kick drum <coughs> like uh, by that i mean the i find myself do that a lot and think you know think in symmetry mm. in the way that you perceive a kick drum as being in the middle yeah but um doesn't have to be like that right you don't have to set your mic up your microphones up symmetrical and most drum kits aren't because your snares off to your left if yeah. you're a, if you're a yeah. right-handed drummer and vice versa if you're the other way so <coughs> you have to start thinking about your your drums in maybe slightly different ways mm. sometimes i'll find that my overheads left and right are they're equidistant from the snare but one's slightly lower Right. Or higher, depending on what sounds good. Huh. So to get a stereo image you have to get rid of the idea of the you know, where the front is and where the where the middle of the drum kit is. The the yeah. sort of overarching theme I'm getting through kind of <coughs> all of this yeah. is that there's kinda of no rules, is there? No, I like to shake shake it up all the time. Right. Okay. Because you can get great sounds from you know, two mics, so you can get great sounds from 15 or 16 mics. Yeah. The one thing you have to bear in mind when you start adding more mics is that thing I mentioned earlier on. I know this isn't an engineering workshop, but it could quickly get into that. But phase, if anybody was to be listening to this and wants to know more about the problems with, with making mm -hmm. up drum kits, be very aware of phase mm -hmm. because you could have a kick drum and I've heard it many times. You could have a kick drum and then a set of overheads and, you know, depending on where the overheads are and where the fundamental of the kick drum is or the, the sound of the kick drum on the microphone, bringing the overheads up can make the, the bass drum sound like all the all the sub is taken off it, all the weight oh, is okay. taken off it because yeah. you have a phase issue between your, your microphones. Oh, okay. I didn't even consider that. Yeah, like, that's, that's yeah. a massive thing. And it's like, it's... It's kind of really hard to exactly put it into how to avoid it. You just mm -hmm. have to be able to hear it and mm -hmm. spot it. But it's usually comparing two microphones on the same source, and the same source being a drum kit. Mm -hmm. So see when you, like, I'm going to throw it back <laughs> to the top of the, the chat, when you were talking about when you started the Delgados and you found yourself to be p both playing and engineering. Yeah. Did the engineering change how you play the drums so like you start to think about things like if i really strong arm the hi-hats then i've got to mix that in a certain way and all that kind of stuff yeah um i didn't practice what i preached <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> i learned a lot from tony dugan right. um who was our engineer for from from second album on and he used to gaffer up my symbols oh okay wow okay yeah. that must because i was saying i want that john I want that John Bonham sound. Yeah. So we'd put microphones in hallways and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, so right. what should we doing here? Right, okay. So 
I mean, there's amazing things to be a lot of fun to be had by that. Yeah, a natural way of recording. If you want that kind of sense of space, uh-huh. put a microphone further away from the drum kit. Yeah. It's just it doesn't have to be a big room. It can just be a hallway. Uh-huh. It can just sound incredible. It's basically delayed, so you can actually work out the speed of sound, <laughs> this tempo of the song, and work out whether where, how far you need to go to get a quarter beat delay on yeah. your song. Wow! So <laughs> you can have a lot of fun just with that. And like, okay, we want a half beat delay. You're gonna have to put the microphone in the, in the car park. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So Tony was was I I wasn't the I had to learn the hard way. I'm a heavy hitter. Right. But I have I was really quite heavy with the cymbals as well. Yeah. And he said, see that drum sound that you love, that big sort of like crunchy, distor- almost like distorted snare. He said, as soon as you tap the same cymbal with the compression up that loud, you're taking everybody's heads off. You're going to have to learn to stop hitting the cymbal so loud. Or you want to be an absolute beast on the bass drum and the snare. And you want to be as light as light a touch on your cymbals, and that's how you get a good yeah. drum sound. In a in a room, you want if you want that classic big John Bonham sound, you want your kick, snare, and toms to be prominent. You don't really need the cymbals because they cut yeah. through. I think it would surprise people how lightly Bonham actually played. Yeah, he wasn't as hard a hitter, I think, as people expected him to be. You can watch it, you can see yeah. it. Some of the live footage is just not hitting the drums anywhere near as hard as people do now. Yeah. You know? Uh, and I think that thing about cymbals still translates. The amount of cymbals we get back broken because mm. people don't realise they don't need to hit them as hard as they hit the drums. I know. Yeah, it's, that's that, that took me a long time to realise that was the case. The solution I found was that when someone gave me a pair of uh, bundle sticks to use, hot rods, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So initially, it was the, it was the, it was the, the stick ones, mm-hmm. the 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 wooden ones, bamboo. sorry, yeah, yeah. The bamboo ones, and and I think Tony was delighted because I still put my arm through the snare, right? So the snare was just as loud, but because when I hit the cymbals, it would splay, yeah, uh, and I wasn't putting my arm through them. I was, I was still, I was kind of flicking them, right. But I was putting my arm through the through the snare, so the snare was still loud. It just didn't have the the quite as much of a transient as it was. But for the cymbals, it really made a difference. And a lot of the recording of like the third album was me on plastic because it, <laughs> we went to plastic ones because the wooden ones Do would believe, last yeah, would literally yeah. last three takes. Wow! Because it would just go. Aye. It would just be shredded because <laughs> <laughs> I had terrible techniques, so I was like a really stupid hitter. So we found that if I got some plastic ones and gaffer taped them up when they burst, then I could I could keep them for a for a session. Mm-hmm. And I still use plastic hot rods. I think it's an amazing it's a it's an amazing thing for somebody who's really heavy handed yeah. like me. It stops the cymbals from being super loud. It makes the the transients on the on the toms and the snare sound like you've you've hit them so hard that the compressor's like absolutely been crushed. Right. It's not. It's actually just the sound of the splaying of the yeah. stick on the skin, which kind of um, I suppose the best way you could liken it to is like it's not quite a sharp attack and sharp sound. It's actually quite a it's quite a longer sound because mm. the, the stick 
goes through it doesn't just bounce off mm -hmm. it just it just spreads and mm -hmm. splats a wee bit mm -hmm. so you've got a longer transient mm -hmm. um and less of a less of a peak right so I, I naturally sounds a wee bit like tape compression or it sounds a wee bit like um or like you've just overly compressed yeah, or yeah. slightly compressed depending on how hard you hit so i think uh when we found that out it was uh it was a needs must sort of thing yeah yeah um, sure but it became part of the sound of that record did you do it live as well um no right so normal sticks for life normal sticks for life i did it for some acoustic shows that we did right. um and i think that's maybe how we first found out about them oh okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. fascinating <coughs> who if you could have recorded md drummer live or dead drummer Aye. um Yeah, but I mean, apart from John Bonham, which would be the obvious one since we've talked about, <laughs> about him so much. Um, oh, that's so hard. <laughs> I mean, did you see these old things? The Gene, I've got the Gene Krupa yeah. kit, you know. Yeah. I look at some of the some of that stuff, that, that, or the videos that you can see of, of him. Yeah. It's just mind-blowing. Oh, it may as well be a different instrument from the one that I play. It's, yeah, it's so, so I different. can I can get that. Yeah, absolutely, can get that. It's a different style, and yeah. and it's another world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I mean, he, that's fascinating. He was the first guy to, to make the drummer. I think, like before yeah. then, they, they were kind of resigned to yeah. wherever they could fit. I think almost you know, but yeah. he was the first guy to really make drums the forefront of anything. Yeah, because he just had so much showmanship and ability. You know. Like sing, 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 and all that—all those old, yeah, big band tunes. I think that the drum, actually, that I, I do, I do know who it would be. It would be Jackie Liebesit. Oh yeah, from Can, from Can. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just got his book. He, I've not, I've not seen it yet. Yeah, uh, it's it's basically about a lot of his notation and techniques, and right. actually theory on life itself. Like a fascinating guy, but yeah. I love the sound of those can records. Mm. He was so precise, but so human. Yeah. It was a weird mix of both. Mm -hmm. It's kind of what we talked about earlier, like mm. the, the best session people, were, mm. you know, and some of those can records, they just sound incredible. Mm -hmm. So I would have loved to have recorded. I've seen him play live, right, which okay. was great. Uh, he died a couple of years ago, but about three years ago, he played in Glasgow. He played in Easterhouse. Wow. No way. Wow. Yeah. Of all the places. And he play. played with... He was, he was struggling with his bass drum leg. So I mean, he's incredibly forward thinking. He played his bass drum with his right hand, um, turned it on his side. Right. Played the bass drum with, the, with that, like a floor tom. Wow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, Alan from the Delgados was mm -hmm. is a programmer at Platform right. in Easter House. So he he brought a few of those those guys over to do a show. I think it was people from, from Faust maybe as well. So, oh, right, yeah. uh, so a kind of um, a lot of that German music from 1968 to yeah. 78 is, yeah. is like incredible for me. Like the, the drummer from Neu, right. for instance, you know, how he could play like that mm. so simply metronomically for 10 minutes. Mm. I don't know. Mm. And, it, it, you know, that's incredible. Um but Jackie, yeah, Jackie, Jackie Lee was, uh, yeah. would be would be the one. Yeah, yeah. Didn't, that's it. Well out of left field. He's a great, great player, man. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah.
yeah, Vitamin C is as a as an example of a song. Uh-huh. It's just mind blowing. Yeah, the the dynamics in it. Yeah, still retained in the recording as well. I think I love I love the sound of the record. I love the sound of the bass drum. It doesn't sound doesn't sound that subby, but it's it's got a knock to it, and this and the snare sound is just almost like it's a drum machine. Mm. And it's just got a, a, a beautiful feel to it. Do you think dynamics are missing from the way a lot of people play? Yeah. Yeah. They are. Right. They're they're missing from everything. They're missing from recordings. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm sitting struggling here today with a, a an album that that I recorded. Not struggling, but I'm I'm I've always got that thing in my mind that I'm a am I killing this mm. by I'm mastering it, so I'm I'm compressing it, I'm I'm making it loud for today's Mm. marketplace you mm. know if that can be an excuse um but people want things louder and they want it louder yeah. to make something louder you've got to push it into the ceiling mm. to the point that it, it the quiet stuff then becomes quite loud as well yeah it becomes a bit fatiguing to listen to and yeah. you don't get the sense of swell and the sense of dynamic hit mm. but People don't want their records to sound quieter than other records. Mm. Most records are mastered with a peak at what's called zero dB, which is it sounds crazy, but zero dB is the maximum you can get to mm-hmm. on a recording, on a digital recording. You most records, even if they're reasonably quiet, will will reach roughly reach that peak because they've been mastered to reach that peak. But what you can do is squash it and squash it and squash it, push it up to the point that it that it all, all just the dynamics are gone. Yeah. So that that difference between the quietest package, uh, passage of the record to the loudest one is is just it's it's just not there. You don't get that sense of well, this is really hitting you in the face when it does. Yeah. We had lots of complaints. Mogwai a classic example of a <laughs> of a band with dynamics. Yeah. Um, when when I did the first album, there was some moments in it which were almost like inaudible, mm. and then they would just in a second they would switch to the loudest thing, and it was not the sort of album you could play at a dinner party because no. it's just it would terrify people if yeah. you t- you know it just would just jump so much, yeah. and part of the appeal of that record is that dynamic range. Yeah, um, we didn't squash the light out, life out of it in the mastering. But it has subsequently been remastered, and I think it's like there's a there's a there's a school of thought that you know a lot of these records, like classical recordings, don't have huge dynamic range because yeah. orchestras are like that; yeah. and they, they they're captured like that. Yeah. Um, it's because the music's they, written like that. Yeah, it's the way it's the way yeah. they play it. Yeah. So, I think there's a there's a lock there's a loss in dynamic range in modern recordings. Mm. Um, yeah. It's the way it is. Yeah, totally. Mm. It is what it is. It's fascinating that I talked about grunge earlier. That was one of the things that Smashing Pumpkins are probably my favourite band. I grew up on a, a massive diet of, of that kind of music. And that was their thing for a long time, you know, yeah. super quiet to super loud on the, uh, the blink of an eye, you know. It's like, yeah. And it's it's amazing. If you listen to record, have you ever put on a Spotify playlist that uh, has Motown? versus pop versus rock versus and the dynamic range yeah. of the songs and then all of a sudden if you if like it's you've got a graphic eq out a lot of the modern songs because they're made for phones so because there's yeah. no bottom end on it so the bottom end is absolutely massive yeah it's quite it's quite a thing 
yeah, there's a lot of a lot of people distort the bottom end of recordings nowadays so that you get upper harmonics and the bass. Mm. Maybe you get a bass note that's played at a fundamental that actually just won't be played on a phone. Mm-hmm. What happens if you distort it or if you distort a bass drum, anything that's really in those frequencies, you generate upper octaves of it mm-hmm. by distortion. It's like second or third harmonic distortion. Right. It's a technique that a lot of people are now using to to allow phones to hear bass lines and bass drums and things like that that you wouldn't normally hear. It's a thing that not, I don't think people are you are doing it with, with any real intention, but it's just become a thing. Yeah. A lot of low end is distorted. And it does help, right? I mean it's a lot of a lot of old Motown stuff has probably got some natural distortion on the tape. Clipping on, on bass and yeah. clipping and, yeah. and, and certain things on the low end anyway. Which which makes it in some ways you know, quite a classic sound that's still sustained. Mm. Still it still can stand up. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if you do compare it back to back, then you'll notice a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Do you get any more? I'm just sitting here absolutely mind blown. Yeah, it's, it's pretty mesmerizing. <laughs> yeah, there's some Um I guess to kind of round it out, have you got like a favourite session that you've done? Favourite like session? One that's um, like stands out above the rest. Even if it's not a particular, like if the release of it wasn't particularly like massive, like um, if you've just got one like moments in the studio. Drums only podcast? Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, apart from that. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, apart from talking <laughs> crap to you guys. Is, is it, um, hmm, it's a tough one. Drum? Are you talking drum wise or just session wise? Just session wise, like so. Like, have you like came out of a particular session and just thought, "Man, that was like I'm kind of sad that's over," you know? Yeah, yeah. That would be. Um, there was a combination of two albums that I did, and I, I, I shouldn't really be saying this because it's not in mass. It's not in this studio, mm-hmm. although you know both of them were were involved in this in a in a, in a slight way. Um, it was about 10 years ago, maybe more, doing the first Phantom Band record. And at the same time, I got asked to work on the third Franz Ferdinand record. And we were working on demos in Govan Town Hall. And <laughs> of all places. Of all places. Yeah, this is, so this is where this is going. Govan Town Hall is a fascinating space. And, and I, I think it's been developed in the hall now, but the hall itself is just this empty it was an unused uh-huh. part of the building. In Film City, we're developing the rooms and in, in different parts of the building. Um, so the Dolby Studios there, the only Dolby Studio in Scotland is in oh, this wow. in Govington Hall in mm-hmm. Film City in Savalas Sound. Uh, so we were in Franz Ferdinand had a little room at the back of what is the main hall or the main um, stage area in the main hall. So you you look at you come in the hall and you look at this huge room with a glass up on one side, huge big double. Uh, it had a balcony, so uh, balcony bit, which was actually really dangerous to walk on. Um, and then the old stage, and then behind that there was a green room, which is where Franz Ferdinand had their rehearsal space. Uh-huh. So we started doing demos in there. Um. The room itself was really interesting because it was quite close to the main stage. It had a hollowed out bit below it. So we were recording Paul's 
Ludwig, old Ludwig mm-hmm. kit without a skin on the front. So I remember the bass drum was just like quite dead, but mm-hmm. the room boomed mm-hmm. because the room had a hollowed out bit below it. So there, I found there was a sweet spot on the other side of the room I could put a mic and it just had this tremendous thump to it. So I loved that room. It was really weirdly perfect for recording that type of drum sound because it was carpeted, really thick, old, stinking green <laughs> carpet, <laughs> which had this spongy sort of feel to it, but it was mm. spongy and sticky. And um, and then the walls were like quite innate, ornately done because it was old school and it had like lots of wood paneling and stuff like that. It had some pillars in it, which also had lots of detail which, you know, I'm not telling you this just to get a picture of the room. It actually sonically is, is is a diffuser if you've got lots of detail. So these things that are in the wall, yeah, yeah. which are just like little boxes with little spaces, they, the, the sound hits them and disperses them. So a bookcase is a good example of a diffuser. Right. Lots of different spines on books uh-huh. and different lines and nothing flat. So you get this kind of sound hits it, diffuses, sounds good. So this room had a natural, naturally good sound. Um, I was supposed to just be doing the demos and then the band decided that they were going to do the record there. And Alex had bought this old 1960s, maybe, desk by a very, very unknown company called Flickinger. Um, apparently this desk was haunted. That was the story. Like this haunted <laughs> desk came over from Chicago. And it was a thing of beauty it was an absolute masterpiece it was an, an incredible looking desk um sounded incredible it had it was so over it was such a great sounding desk and we did the recording in govan town hall they brought a producer in and i was the engineer at the time and and um so we we recorded the third album which was called tonight in there and it was a joy to work on we were taking the kit and we had the kit options for the kit in three different rooms we had the room i was telling you about the green room with the carp with the carpet in it we had the actual hall itself which we could take all the kit and put it in the hall which was crazy reverb like stupid stupid sort of reverb and then they also put i caught on a couple of songs we put it actually in the like the story space below the stage which is kind of like where all the stage props and stuff would be mm-hmm. so but there was a junk room down there that we it was quite a garagey sounding place so we had three different places and dan carey who was producing it was really up for experimenting with different things so the first single was is called ulysses and then ulysses we had mic'd up the kit in the dry room in the green the green room with the carpet and then he said for the middle eight can we go into the hall but I want the mics exactly and the kit exactly the same. So we had to mark it all, take it, all the mics, and then put it in the hall. And just by doing that, taking it from, sorry, taking it from one room to the other, it was an incredible sort of difference in sound. You can hear it in the record. It's, it sounds like somebody just put a reverb plug in, in it, <laughs> but it's, it's not. It's actually just, we just shifted the whole kit and put it in that room. So we were using these spaces, which is a fantastic thing to do as an engineer and certainly as a drummer you get to hear different tones and different things so how a kit sounds in a different in mm. a different room so they went to mix it in london with dan 
and because the session had run on a little bit, I was working at the same, roughly at the same time as the uh, on the the Phantom Band's first record for our label, and I was supposed to be finishing it off, but I had postponed it because we were running over, and then I wanted to come in and mix it in here, but I couldn't because somebody else had booked the time and because I had been a wee bit late, so the only I had two weeks booked but no studio so I asked uh, Franz Ferdinand if I could if we could just mix it in their place on this beautiful desk um, which was kind of like a makeshift studio it's an incredible desk but it wasn't it wasn't a typical studio in the sense that it, the room wasn't tuned or had any sort of like obviously sort of like special soundproof and it was uh -huh. a wee bit of a kind of like it was just a really kind of vibey place to record and it was, uh, you know, you're never really quite sure if it was the right thing to do, but it was always, always came up with really cool sounds. So looking back, it was like, okay, we'll do it in there, we'll try it. I'd, I was mixing on these speakers I didn't know and this room I didn't know and this desk I'd never used before. We also had a setup where instead of like a lot of reverb and stuff like that, I didn't, I thought, Going back to the old ways that people used to make up vocals and and drum kits, is they not make up, but they would they would affect them by sending a copy of the recording into another room mm -hmm. live. So there'd be a speaker connected to the desk that's in another room. So there'd be a, a tiled room or something somewhere, and then on the back of that tiled room there'd be like a stereo microphone, a stereo set of microphones. So you get the sense of space. So you can basically put the vocal into that room or a snare drum into that room. So a lot of old recordings used echo chambers. Almost like reamping. Yeah, so it's like reamping but yeah. live. Yeah. So I thought, actually, we've got the ultimate echo chamber in Govan Town Hall. So I put a pair of Genelex on the side on the stage and ran a cable like all the way down the stairs and along the corridor <laughs> to the live room, to the control room where the desk was. And I thought, oh, this probably won't work, it's crazy. But then I put two Neumann mics, beautiful Neumann mics, one in far away to, uh, from the other, left and right, at the other side of the hall. So like 30 metres up the hall. Mm -hmm. So it's a big, big hall. It's probably got a reverb time of like... A week. Like, oh yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> you know, so like, okay, this is extreme, but that's a lot of fun. So I tried it and it was the most incredible and opulent and over the top thing I've ever <laughs> done in a recording session. I had a basic Govan Town Hall as a reverb chamber. That's I could the put the vocals thing. in it, I could put the snare drum in it. It was just incredible. So all that, I mean, a lot of it wasn't recorded, it was just live. So as I was mixing, I've, I mean, God knows what the people who worked in Govan Town Hall were, were thinking. It was like, the, I'm hearing this song again and again. Or I'm hearing this screeching backing vocal that sounds like a banshee coming out <laughs> of this studio, you know, this hallway. And there was these two mics picking up and it was just the most incredible thing to have. Especially for things like, there was like on the end of the first song, there's a big tom bit that ends the whole song. Mm -hmm. There's the sound of a tom. And it's basically the sound of that being sent into that room and dying off. And a lot of the backing vocals, quite morricone Right. Sort of like yeah. really long 60s backing vocals. I mean, not going through anything else except it was just real air and microphone and just 
but I'm no totally plug-in up, yeah. could ever emulate that. It was just yeah. one of the most incredible things. And I probably didn't appreciate it. And it's only just like in the last couple of years, in fact, that that first album was reissued last year. And um, thinking back on it, that was one of those moments where it was like doing the Franz Ferdinand album in there and doing the Phantom Band's first album mix in there on that desk. Because the desk is incredible. And in that room and having that kind of thing to play with. I will never, never get that again. You talk about old studios. Like, yeah. I mean, it's like having Abbey Road as a reverb chamber. Yeah. It's like, move over, Beatles. We want to use this to send right. a snare drum in here. Man, you know. it's amazing. Crazy. Well, what, do you know what happened to that desk? Alex has still got it. Still got it? Yeah. Yeah, he's still got it. In his, I thought there was going to be like a really tragic end to that. Yeah, and it's, it's like then the desk burned day. down. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we set it in fire. That. We left it in Govan Town Hall. We set the whole thing on fire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. We've, we've peaked. Yeah. Uh, haunts Govan, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't be the only thing haunting Govan. Um, well, on that note, man, I don't know that we're going to top that as a closer, are we? Yeah, that's um, pretty amazing. So... Uh, where can people find you if they want to find you uh, on uh, you do do you do social media yeah Does i'm there, just um i'm on twitter uh i tend to i don't do facebook or anything like that no, yeah i don't like it no, <laughs> i quite like twitter i think it's at chemical janitor but chemical's, chemical's got, a chemicals got a k in the yeah. janitor um is the studio one the studio is chem19.co.uk cool. i think We'll link it. We'll uh, like yeah, it. We'll put it in the show notes. notes. I'm pretty yeah. bad with all this stuff. You, I know you're good at all this kind of <laughs> social media. I should be more. If you're on the internet, I'll find you. Yeah, somewhere. you'll be able to find everything about it. So, um, thank you very much, man. Yeah, oh, thanks thank for coming you by. You know, it's been a pleasure. I'm surprised I managed to talk about drums that much. But oh, it's been great. It's been hella educational. Oh man, yeah. Just so whole new drummer. Hopefully, a different mm-hmm. a different perspective for people yeah. rather than I can only talk about. Yeah, oh, it's great. It's a slinger land yeah. drum and a Ludwig drum, and that's me. Brilliant. I'm out of drums. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, man. Um, and we'll no doubt catch up with you soon. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers, Paul. <laughs>